Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, Episode 16, Debris. I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher and founder of On Milwaukee, and I'm joined by Jeff Wise, aviation expert, journalist, MH370, bon vivant. I just made that one up. <laughs> Happy New Year, it's Jeff. Good, I yeah. like that. Yeah. That's my new. That's my new handle. Bon vivant. I'm a bon vivant. Uh, and uh, yeah. especially on New Year's Eve, which is we're recording this on New Year's Eve, the last day of 2023. It's going to air during 2024, the year of the decade anniversary. Can you believe? Crazy. Can you believe that you've spent the last decade of your life on this mystery? No, and my wife can't believe she spent the last decade of her life with me. <laughs> the entire time of what I'm at but this will be the year. Maybe this will be the this year. Will be the year. This will be this the will year be that year. we are going to present the, our answers that we've been pr- presenting the evidence, and and hopefully someone yeah. will do something about it. It's not so much the answers is like let's talk about how to talk about this mystery. How can we really deal with this constructively? Because it's really been sort of lost in this fog of just kind of you know free flowing, ungrounded theories, and it's just nothing has built upon something else. We want to build like a ziggurat of knowledge, like fact upon fact upon fact, building the hypotheses, testing the hypotheses, understanding what can have, what might have happened, what definitely didn't happen, and just really trying to bring clarity to this mystery. So it's been quite a journey. 2023, of course, will always be remembered as the year in which we started this podcast. And Andy, you, you came to me after this um, documentary aired on Netflix, and we kind of just decided to Give it a go. Yeah. And here we are, 16 episodes. Right. So I, I pulled a bunch of, of stats last night as we were prepping for the show, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment in, in a, okay. a little bit. But I think that we should we should jump into this thing. Yeah, let's get into uh, it. So th- this, is, uh, this is another interesting episode because it moves the story forward. In the last episode, we talked about the seabed search, which, as we know, resulted in nothing. Uh, a lot of money, a lot of time was spent. It was October 2014, and plane had been missing for eight months. Everyone had hope in finding hopefully the black box or at least some pieces of something. And yeah. not only did they not find anything, um, it ultimately is what led them to, to, to give up. Um, but people had not forgotten about the concept of floating debris. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, let me just though, say, though, that when they started the, the seabed search, the when they were scanning the bottom of the ocean, and they started that in October 2014, about eight months after the plane went missing, it was going to be like a two-year-long process, uh, and they wouldn't find anything. But that itself is not nothing. Right? That's actually really something, because they searched a huge area, ultimately the size of Great Britain. The fact that it wasn't there from in Bayesian terms, yeah, as we're looking at this from Bayesian terms, that actually is a huge amount of information. It really cuts down from one hypothesis and puts the uh, probability higher on other alternative hypotheses. So I don't want to minimize what they achieved. They spent a lot of time and money, and they really achieved something important. However, that's not what we're talking about today. You're right. You're As right. you say, we're going to talk about floating debris. Okay, but but no, you make a good point that, that finding nothing doesn't mean that it was specifically a failure. It just means that that hypothesis didn't come to pass because right. it wasn't there, or at least it wasn't. Right available to all the technology and all the people who found it. So, you know, where do you go from it there? It proved yet again that assumptions can be wrong. And so the assumption that they had it all in hand was wrong. So to get back to our story, so it's been eight months. It's now October. It's this, the, the southern summer is starting. The warm weather is starting. Good search weather. People are starting to ask, what about, while we're staying, we're starting to, you know, we're, we're starting this new process of the seabed search. We're optimistic about that going forward. But in the meantime, 
what's going on with the debris? Because by now it's been eight months. And if you think that the plane went more or less where the search area is, then in the intervening eight months since the crash, there should have been a lot of debris because we know that a plane hit the ocean. This should have made lots and lots of pieces. And those pieces should have, should have first of all, probably been seen from the air if they were looking in the right place. And then secondarily, those pieces eventually should have washed up somewhere. Uh, back in 2014, Prime, then Prime Minister of Australia, Tony Abbott, had a quote that, once again, I've, I've heard a lot of like official quotes that in retrospect, maybe Monday morning quarterbacking these things. I'm like, that doesn't really make sense. He said, I am now required to say to you that it is highly unlikely at this stage that we will find any aircraft debris on the ocean surface. Uh, by this stage, 52 days uh, into uh, uh, the search, uh, most material would have become waterlogged and sunk. Well, that doesn't make sense right. to me. Because not... Because... Well, I mean, some of this stuff is like kind of waterproof. I mean, I'm not a seat cushion manufacturer, but I don't think that those kind of things get waterlogged and sink, and nor, nor do pieces of metal debris, right? I mean, this is, this is not exactly how this works, and you know about this from, from the Air France flight, right? Right, yeah. We've got a great graphic of the, of the stuff that they found floating when they did aerial searches for Air France 447, that case back in 2009 that we keep referring to. This also was a plane that went down in the middle of the ocean, in this case, the Atlantic, um, it was very far from land, but they were able to fly out and, and spot this stuff and collect it. So by analogy with that crash, there should have been a lot of pieces. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, when people talk about, there's a lot of, a lot of attention these days to, you know, floating plastic debris and the, and, and the, and the great Pacific yeah. garbage patch. I mean, yeah. the, whole, the whole idea is that like this stuff never sinks. It never right. goes away. So that seems a little contradictory, actually. Um, but we, but you're right. We keep getting these um, statements from Australian politicians that are, you know, suit their the message that they want to get across, which in this case is we don't want to look anymore. Not that it's not there anymore, but we just don't want to look anymore. I'm sure you know pieces of luggage might sink to the bottom or, or engines, or stuff like that. But certainly there are enough plastic and metal pieces and rubber pieces that would would float. I, I saw. So we got a quote here from Emirates Airline. CEO Tim Clark. I thought this was interesting. And he was expressing frustration from the ATSB analysis of the plane. He said, our experience tells us that in water incidents where the aircraft has gone down, there is always something. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you look, I mean, when, when this happened back in October of 24, 2014, I was wondering about this and I was starting to look at historical analogs and to try to understand, well, should we expect to find this or not? And in every single case, including some like previously back in history, there was a Boeing uh, 377 Stratocruiser, which is not an aircraft type I was familiar with. No. But it's like kind of an old school four engine prop plane from 1957. And it disappeared between San Francisco and Hawaii. And even there, this is, you know, pre-satellite age pre, you know, locator beacons and everything. They just, they, they sound Navy ships and they found pieces. So there should be floating pieces. And not only should there be floating pieces, but I think maybe a lot of people think that the uh, remoteness of this flight is an impediment 
in finding that. Yeah. But back in 1957, when that Stratocaster, the Clipper Romance of the Skies, which is a an excellent name for a plane, uh, they don't do they still name individual airline um, uh, sometimes like planes? I I I can't give you a definitive answer, but I feel like sometimes when I get on a plane, you know, you look to like the, yeah. the lettering on the side, and they do have a name like you know the city of Memphis or something. Yeah, I've seen that. But yeah. I don't know if it's like standard practice. I'm gonna look into that. I don't know. I, at any rate, but they definitely used to have better names back in the day when it was like <laughs> yeah. the Clipper, the, yeah. the Clippers of the sky, and all that. Sort of so stuff. back in 1957, they literally used an aircraft carrier, and they found mm. the de- they found the floating debris, and that was like a thousand miles from the nearest land. And that was yeah. like 1957 technology. Right. Whereas the this general seabed search for MH370 was like 1500 miles southwest of Perth, Australia. So yeah, it's farther, but we're talking about 21st century technology. Yeah, you know we've got like much more reliable aircraft and and longer range and faster and all that. So, um, so yeah, there's this there's this real kind of growing sense of wait a minute, why isn't there any floating debris? There should be because at this point, literally all we have are these mathematical pings that that no aircraft has really generated by by themselves before um, and we've got this mathematical method that these that these scientists have cooked up that uh, like only a handful of people in the world seem to really understand how this works and so there's an uh, the entire mystery is hanging on a very thin thread without any kind of um, data that that uh, supports it. I right. know there's a term that, <laughs> that I'm drawing a blank on. I'm sorry. I don't know yeah. what that term is, but I, I do know that... Supporting evidence. Supporting evidence. But I do know right. I'm looking at this map, which I'm going to put up on the screen, which yeah. is the uh, the search area, or the surface search area coverage up until right. April 28, 2014. So right. you can see that there's a part to the south and a part to the north. Um the, they searched the southern part first because they were using that Inmarsat data, and then they realized that the BTO data implied that. Well, I mean, they they assumed that the BTO data implied what we all thought, which was the plane was flying straight and fast, and that's where it would be. But then they got the BFO data, right? Right. Okay. Right. So what happened was when they first got the Inmarsat data, they could only really make sense of the BTO data, and they were like, okay, well, and we talked we talked about this at length in previous episodes. But if you look at the ping ring data, it implies, and, and if you assume that the plane was flying straight and fast, it tells you right away where it went. And so that's where they started to look. Boom, right away. And you know, Andy, there's kind of this phenomenon, I'm sure as a journalist, you've encountered this before. Sometimes like when you don't know anything except like the most basic facts of a story, you like assume that like, oh, well, you know, I guess Santa Claus isn't real. <laughs> you know, you reach an obvious conclusion. And then you more, the more you learn about it, the more you're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe he, you know, maybe it's complicated. Maybe there's these other things I should. And then you kind of get less and less certain the more you know. And then when you know a lot and it all comes together, it goes back to being simple again. That's some sort of so bell they, curve or something, a reverse bell there is curve. Kind of yeah. A, like, yeah, I feel like there's probably a meme about this or something. If there isn't, we're going to start one. Yeah, that's how we're going to make this thing viral, We'll put it on screen if we can find it. I'm going to make it myself. um, Go on. Okay, so then they they found about the BFO data. So when they they hadn't had time to really think about it, they reached the conclusion that it probably went straight and fast. And then they got the BFO data, which was really complicated and hard to understand. And they started to think, well, maybe 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 we should try to look at paths that Follow the ping that 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 lie on the ping arc 
but also fit the BFO data. And if you do that, you wind up looking at, at courses that go much further north. And so they skipped from deep south to much further north, and they missed this whole intermediate part. And then they had more time to think about it. They finally really understood the BFO data in depth, and they realized that approach, which, by the way, is the, to help to find the area where they did that acoustic pinger search we talked about. Yeah. They were like, forget it. That's wrong. All of that is wrong. Do you think it would be a good idea to, since we're on episode 16, to just give our listeners and viewers like a super fast, like 20 sec, two, you know, 140 character recap of what BFO data is because it's so oh, significant yeah. and maybe not everybody remembers this to the extent that we do. So, the, so there's two kinds of Inmarsat data. The BTO data, which is the time in, that, that takes the signal but to, to go between the satellite and the plane. And that, that time tells you how far the plane was from the satellite. And when you map all those out, it makes these series of arcs. And from the arcs, you can drive the path that the plane took. But the complication is it actually gives you two paths, one of which is kind of a symmetrical mirror of the other. One goes north, one goes south. And so the second part of the Inmarsat data is the BFO or burst frequency offset data. And that has to do with the relative motion of the satellite and the plane. It's very complicated, but I think we explained it in the frequency episode. For sure. And you should go uh, back and refer to that. But just as we, as we say these yeah. phrases, I want to make sure people know what they mean. Uh, For sure. Definitely. So, so next, next topic is, uh, <laughs> is flotsam, which is a word that <laughs> you hear like used in slang, but it really is a real word. Not to be confused with Jetson. Which is also a real so, word. Yes, I looked them the, both yeah, up to make sure I knew the difference. Flotsam and Jetson? I do now. Flotsam <laughs> is, uh, is pieces of debris from, I think it was design, typically a ship, but it could, mm-hmm. it could also be a plane. And Jetson is um, like stuff that you would throw over on purpose uh, right. to lighten your load or to drop fuel or yeah. something like that. People yeah. just, I, I, I actually did have to look that up because I wanted to make sure that I was using it correctly. It's a great thing at, like, dinner parties to, like, explain these, this kind of thing to people. They're always grateful. Are they? No. <laughs> They're not. At your Boxing Day party, did you, uh, did you talk about Flotsam <laughs> yeah, we, and Jetson? Excuse me. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. I hit the glass with my spoon. I said, I'm now going to give you a brief discourse on the difference between Flotsam and Jetson. No, I, could I, actually, I could actually see that happening, but that's yeah, why I yeah. love this podcast. Give me a couple a couple glasses of wine in, maybe. <laughs> uh, hey, it's New Year's Eve. Um, okay, so wait. They, no, no debris had been spotted at all. I mean, there was actually – I mean, people thought they found debris, but it was, it was debunked. I mean, in the early days of this thing, they found oil slicks and they found blobs of things, but it turned out to not be plain stuff. Throughout this mystery, there have always been claims – People making claims. I saw this thing. I found this thing. Somebody told me this thing. Um, and one of the real challenges of MH370 has been separating the wheat from the chaff and trying to understand, like, what is a credible thing and what is not a credible thing. Some of these things that people said, oh, I found this piece of something. Well, guess what? It was. Um, but it, but you, have to, you have to discriminate what's real and what's not. That's the challenge. So at this point... Logical people, I mean, all, all of us thought that some of the flotsam was going to wash up on a beach. I mean, that <clears throat> I don't. A lot I, of people were thinking this. And there, <clears throat> there are a lot of beaches this. where it could have washed up, but the the question is, where would it wash up? We we had this pretty def- 
well-constrained, I would say, not small, but well-constrained area where we thought that the plane went. And so um, at the time, various people <clears throat> who were interested in this, I was one of them, started to um, think, okay, well, where would it go? If it, was in, if it fell somewhere in this general area, where would it go? Where should we look? And I, at the time, I, I wrote a blog post about this and I like used a simple online tool where you can like click on any part of the ocean and it'll run this very simple model and it'll show the particles. Yeah. Like, like spreading out. And I think we should maybe talk a little bit about floating and drift, mo with, it's called drift modeling. I think we should. Uh, I'm gonna pause for just a second here while we do something called an interstitial and it'll be, mm. really, it'll be really fast, I promise. Okay. Uh, I wanna mention a couple things. Now, first of all, as we are in episode 16 of this, this is not a nonprofit project. This is something that we're doing in, in not only just to save the world and to find the, find the, the plane, but I mean, it's also a business model. So I should point out that this podcast is available for sponsorship. Uh, I spent many, many hours compiling the analytics last night on all the different platforms that this exists, both on video and audio. So whether it be YouTube or Facebook or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon Music, and it turns out that the numbers are really good, Jeff, and they're continuing to grow. So I would like to briefly mention that there are sponsorship opportunities, and should anyone be interested in that for their business, they can find more information both at deepdiveimage370.com or they can quite simply email me and my email address is andy at on milwaukee.com as they say in the billboard business your message here exactly and it could be a very powerful way to connect with a very interesting and growing audience all right got that out of the way uh i also have to do the very brief like and subscribe thing and that oh, is yeah. only because we want to continue to grow our subscription numbers because uh that lends us more credibility so when you go on your ufo podcast or the pod ufo podcast it's because you know not just or you're, you're not just an aviation journalist pro mh370 bon vivant you also have this excellent platform so uh, shameless plug to uh, please click that button definitely uh, and thanks for, and we just, and also, you know, we love to interact uh, with people. A lot of people have questions about MH370. So, you know, you could, um, sometimes people email me and I've started saying like, please post it as a, in, as a comment, yeah. uh, either to deepdivemh370.com or to the YouTube page that we have, um, because it's, it's it's great for people. If you have a question, other people probably have it too. So for sure. And the last part of this interstitial couple. that I want to mention is as we start the new year next week, uh, our our episode is going to be a little bit different. We are while it's still going to be a full on episode, we're going to take a break from the chronology of this thing, and we're going to do more of an overarching. Uh, uh, I'm not going to spoil it, but kind of a a, a, a teaser recap, and that's because this is such a long podcast that if people jump in halfway through, they it might be confusing to them. I mean, the way to watch right. this is to watch it from the beginning or listen to it from the beginning. So uh, we only have so many hours in a day. So um, yes, there will be new content on next Thursday's episode is just going to be a little bit different than that. And uh, I think it's going to be And then we'll get back cool. to our chronology yes. after that. Okay. All right. Okay. And that concludes the interstitial. Let's talk okay. about... Thank you, interstitial. <laughs> let's talk about uh, drift modeling and, okay. and currents and things. Uh, I'm looking at this map of the predominant current currents in the Indian Ocean, and right. it actually kind of makes sense to the layman that I am. Yeah. So there are 
currents in the ocean, and these are sort of like broad tendencies of the way that water moves. You know, the most famous current, at least as somebody on the east coast of the United States, is the Gulf Stream, which, mm-hmm. which goes up from the Caribbean up towards northern Europe, and it makes like England and Scandinavia like much warmer than it otherwise would be because you've got this like large scale movement of water. But and you can see that in that in that chart um, that we were looking at, Andy. And but I think it's important for people to understand that it's not nearly as deterministic as that picture makes it seem. A, a, a sort of way to think of it is like imagine that you take um, a little like handful of like a pinch of pepper and like put it in your bathtub, right? It'll land in the bathtub in like a little p- patch, but then the pepper will kind of spread out kind of randomly yeah. in every direction. And that same thing will happen with, you know, seat cushions from an airplane or, or you know, rubber ducks that fell off a container ship. And so you things do tend to move in a certain direction, but they also spread out while they're doing that. So just because a drift model says one thing doesn't mean that stuff can't drift in different places? Or are you saying that it's just, it's more... It's not swirly. so deterministic, it's more probabilistic. Okay. So, and it kind of works backwards and forward in time in this sort of Bayesian way where it's like, if you have a piece at location A, you can do a reverse, like the further back in time you go, the bigger the uncertainty as to where it came from. And conversely, as you project forward into time, you know, the more possible areas this rubber duck could wind up. And we have some video as well that um, video viewers can, can see various computer models where people, you know, they take like a million virtual particles and they run it through a, mo- a sort of a model that is based oftentimes on a combination of actual drifter model. They have these devices that oceanographers throw in the ocean and they, and they sort of transmit their location by satellite. So you can actually see the actual current in action on this particular particle. And then if you do that thousands of times, which they do, you can kind of get a good idea of how probabilistically things move around. And they do, things will go backwards and forwards and up and down. And like, it's very much a crazy walk, what they call a drunkard's walk in statistics. Really? You never heard drunkard's walk? Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't take anything. Well, you're the, bio, you know, you're the science major and, <laughs> and the international communication. It's a colorful little community. I like uh, I mean, uh, analogy. So as you can see, if you look at the video version of this podcast, you'll see that Depending on, so there's this sort of general current trend in this part of the Southern Indian Ocean that kind of goes counterclockwise. Yes. And so if you're in the bottom part of the search area, you're like, you're near five o'clock and you're mm-hmm. going to be carried up towards three. Which happens to be Australia. Which, which is kind of, and you'll also be carried sort of to the east. So you'll be carried sort of to the north and to the east. You'll sort of spread out and diffuse in that way. And you'll wind up on the Australian coast. If you're a little bit further north, you're more at like three o'clock. You're yeah. going to be carried north and then also to the west. And so you're going to wind up towards Madagascar and the kind of South African uh, coast, that sort of area. And this totally makes sense if you just look at this video and if, if you're not if you're not watching this podcast and you're listening to it then this you should definitely just visit deepdivemh370.com because we have the graphics there uh tell me about um in october uh october 1st you interviewed a pioneering ocean current researcher named curtis ebensmeyer this guy sounds very very smart he's a retired professor from of oceanography at the university of washington uh you got you got to tell me about what what he said to you 
Well, he had done, he had spent his career kind of trying to understand currents in the way that we've been talking about. And so when I presented, when I came to him and I said, listen, it's been at this point, eight months and would, should we have seen things by now? And he drew it, he drew a hand-drawn chart, uh, that he sent to me, uh, which we, which we have. Let's put that up right now also, cause it's, it's kind of cool. So, um, he basically is like, there should be pieces in Australia kind of right now. And, um, now that was based on this more southerly, um, endpoint, which is more consistent again with that initial, like the plane probably flew straight and fast. Um, and so that raised my, but so then it got me wondering, well, okay, is anybody in Australia looking on the beaches? And the answer was yes, a ton of people in Australia. Or looking on the beach. Yeah, so because he could even tell you how quickly this wreckage would have traveled. He said that it probably if it was in that that area, it would have been going five to ten miles per day. And those computer models of drift patterns suggest a similar conclusion. Uh, so, sure enough, you got those beach guys, those beachcombers in Australia who were kind of on high alert. They were on high alert. I mean, and, and not necessarily in an official way. I mean, you didn't need to like sound the the fire horn um, and put out an APB. Everyone in the world was obsessed with MH370. You know, throughout I would say 2014, and so every time a person in Australia went to the beach, especially in this um, you know southwestern part of Australia near Perth. Uh, they were thinking I might be the person that finds the first piece of debris of MH370. And, um, and they also had, you know, organized beach cleanup days because they're good citizens and they want a clean beach. Um, and so I talked to them and they said, yeah, we're, we're definitely looking for it. So Ebensmeyer, Ebensmeyer, uh, he, he brought up an interesting statistic. He said that if we assume that the impact generated a million fragments and if one-tenth of one percent of the fragments reached the coast, that's a thousand objects or one per mile of Australian coastline. But yeah, and, and again, to like look at previous analogies too, when, when Air France 447 went down, hundreds of, of pieces and bodies were, were found floating. And so, yeah, there should be a significant discovery. So you've got a lot of pieces uh, potentially reaching shore and you've got a lot of people looking for them. The Tanagora Blue Foundation is the, is the group in the Western Australia beach cleanup day. And they do that, um, they do that October 11th and 12th and 1500 volunteers combed 130 beaches up and down the western coast collecting plastic, other debris, no flotsam, maybe some jetsam. Neither flotsam nor jetsam. But yeah, they were they were very very well aware that 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 they could be the ones who found it and apparently you also talked to that person. You talked to Renee Moritz. You talked to a lot of people, Jeff. Well, Andy if I may, I mean, Please. this is my approach. It's like, I don't, cause you know, there's been some frustration because there's certain invest, like, I don't know, investigators might be too generous of a term. Like there's people have theories about this and they'll cook up a theory and they just will never check it out. And so I'm like, if you have a question and you're a journalist, then find somebody who will have an answer to that question. Um, so that's why I talked to the drift modeler and why I talked to the lady running the, the, the search on the beach. And I talked, I've talked to a lot of other people since. Um, they expected to find debris 
uh, on the Australian coast. There was good reason to think that they would find debris. They certainly had enough people to find it. Um, and they didn't find it. And in the years that have followed, it's now been a decade and they have never, not a single piece of MA370 has ever been found on the Australian coast. They even had like an, they even had like a, uh, like a protocol on how to report it back to their group. So, so, so they had these 1500 people who were, you know, basically looking for garbage. I mean, picking up garbage, trying to make it a nice beach because Australians love a beach and they want to have a nice beach. Um, but as a sort of secondary goal was, you know, as you're picking up all this junk, if you, if you come across something that looks like a piece of an airplane or a seat cushion or what, what have you, um, you know, this is what you should do. So there was a whole protocol. It wasn't just like it got, it, these things probably got lost because people didn't know what to do. Everyone was aware. Everyone was, had been given instructions. They were all like standing by. So now I'm just going to go out and say it. All right. We've got 30 minutes into this episode and... They found nothing by mid twenty by mid twenty fifteen. It's the search had reached this like limbo stage. The seabed search didn't find anything. The extensive search of Australian beaches didn't find anything. And the only reason to think that the plane had gone south was this set of Inmarsat data that had been generated as a result of an equipment reboot that nobody could explain. And I had already figured out and published and talked about on international TV, the fact that there seemed to be a vulnerability in the airplane that would have allowed someone to fake this signal if they were highly motivated and highly sophisticated. So all of these things taken together. And by this point, by the way, the seabed search in which so many hopes had been pinned, they'd already, the, the, the original search area that they said they were 97% certain it was gonna be in that area, had already been found empty. And so they had just gone ahead and doubled it without any real analytical reason for doing so. And then on July 29th, 2015, this happened. A two meter long piece of wreckage found on a beach in Reunion Island. According to the Malaysian prime minister, it probably belongs to a Boeing 777. But for now, Malaysian, Australian and French authorities have not confirmed whether it's a piece of wing from flight MH370, although this latest discovery seems to be a good lead. It is a realistic possibility that wreckage uh, from MH370, if it entered the Indian Ocean in the place where our current search operations are, uh, are being undertaken, could have reached the Reunion Islands in the uh, 16 months since the incident. According to a local newspaper, Parts of a suitcase were also found near the piece of wreckage. A serial number can be read on the flaperon, and it's expected to confirm whether it belongs to Flight 370 that went missing in March last year, with 239 people on board. Obviously, this came as a huge shock, and it changed everything about the search for MH370. 